to the Red Dog Road Podcast, a program for people seeking a deeper perspective on the outdoors, sports, and personal performance. And now, here is your host, Nick Pinizzato. Hello, friends, and thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. This is episode four, Fish Photo Fail. And this episode is going to be focused on a story that I just wrote about on reddogroad.net about a fish photo fail. And I'm going to give you a little bit more detail about that on the show because there's a lot of background that I couldn't put into a a web-sized article, if you will. So you'll have to go to the website, however, to check it out, to actually check out the photo because obviously here on the podcast, you're not going to be able to see it. Uh, Since we last talked, I had a week at home after being at Salt Lake City at the Western Hunt Expo, and it was much needed time back home, chance to catch up with things I needed to do here, spend time with family, of course, chasing my soon-to-be 15-month-old around the house, which I spent a lot of time doing this morning. It was a lot of fun, and finally I wore him out, and he's taking a nap now, which is a cool thing. And the other thing is I'm just generally pretty bad at communication when I'm traveling. So what happens is I get my work emails piling up and then I find myself when I get back trying to catch up with people. So I did a good amount of that this week as well. And also had a chance to get back on track with my fitness needs because, again, on the road it's more difficult. I did run a 5K when I was at the show in Salt Lake City, which was great. But that wasn't the same as just keeping up with my exercise. And the nice thing is I was able to run outside for the first time in a a little while as we've had some decent temperatures. One of the days was even 60 degrees when I was out there, which is a good thing. I welcome that anytime as opposed to running on on the treadmill when I can help it. So that was good. And another cool thing happened this week is that is I connected with my friend Mike Groman, who you heard a couple of shows ago. And Mike has agreed to be the co-host for the show. And as a matter of fact, he's more than agreed. He's excited to do it. So right now he's taking care of some equipment needs. I know he's ordered his equipment to do what he needs to do on his end. Uh, but then also, unfortunately, this week he had to deal with having his truck totaled. He ended up in a, I think he said it in his text, was a 16-car pileup on some icy roads in Pennsylvania. Luckily, he's okay, but I think he got hit by a couple of vehicles, and now he is truck shopping. So his priorities right now are a little bit elsewhere, but he's going to get that taken care of, I'm sure. And I don't envy him at all. And the most important thing is, is that the B team, as we call ourselves, we're back in full play now and looking to to cause some issues, I'm sure. So really, but more really excited just to have Mike joining the show and having him get his equipment squared away. And we'll be, we'll be ready to rock and roll here very shortly. So with that, let's go ahead and step into the take a walk down Red Dog Road segment. Yeah, I finally came up with a name for it. I've just sort of been letting this thing happen organically. I didn't want to rush out and exactly have everything pinned down exactly how I was going to do it on the show, but I want to do a segment each show before I get into the meat of, of what we're going to talk about, or if I have a guest, I want to call it Take a Walk Down Red Dog Road. And this is where we're going to have, we're going to focus on a lesson maybe that I learned during the week or something that happened to me that gave, uh, gave me a chance to think back and reflect upon what had happened and, and what it may mean in a bigger perspective. So the segment will be Take a Walk Down Red Dog Road, and let's go ahead and do that. So this happened, the, the, the big lesson for me or the big reminder for me this week uh, is about giving 100% in everything you do. And I learned this lesson on my flight back from Salt Lake. Now, there were there was a, a lot of weather, particularly in the north uh, northeast. I had to fly back through Detroit, which probably was a bad decision in the first place. I should have probably set that flight up to come back through Atlanta, which tends to have a little bit less weather delays this time of year. But at any rate, on the flight back from Salt Lake, the very 
I, I knew that my connection had already been canceled the minute I got to the airport in Salt Lake. So you do everything right. You try to get to the airport on time. And you're there two hours early, only to find out that the flight you were supposed to take is going to be another at least hour delay, if not longer. So you can't control it. You just got to make yourself comfortable and do the best you can with the situation. But I knew my connecting flight was already canceled, but they were going to put me on an, an earlier flight, which would have got me home earlier than I originally was planning, which was a good thing. Well, then, of course, that flight... The flight I'm supposed to be on to get to Detroit gets delayed and you just see anybody that does a fair amount of business travel. It's not glamorous. You run into these creeping delays and they run into each other. And then the next thing you know, you find yourself not even making it home, which is the, what I was really trying to avoid. But at any rate, we did end up getting out of Salt Lake at a reasonable time. And I remember looking at my phone, seeing that there was an outside chance, especially if my next flight from Detroit got delayed, that I could make it and still get home when I was anticipating. So the whole time I'm in the air, I'm trying to pay attention to the, the, the pace of our flight versus the other flight that's there. And of course, lo and behold, I get a delay, which is great. And then it gets delayed again. And now I'm figuring, you know what, as soon as I land at the airport, if I run and get to the next gate, there's a good chance I'm going to make it. Unfortunately, if you're not familiar with the Detroit airport, you don't want to land in A and then have to go out of B, C, or D because that means having to go uh, go all the way across to the other terminal and it's just a it's just a long way to get there and I had about as far as you possibly could go to get to that gate but as I'm running to get there I'm, I'm watching my phone and I'm seeing that uh, that it's still listed as boarding and it hasn't closed they have not closed the gate yet so uh, essentially I get to the gate and I see that the boarding door is still open on the plane and the gate agent as she goes to scan my boarding pass essentially looks at it and says, well, you're booked on two flights because Delta has already moved you to the next flight, so you'll just have to wait for the next one, essentially, was the conversation. And I'm like, um, I'm looking down, I see the boarding doors open, uh, other people are showing up to get on this flight, and the plane isn't going anywhere, why can't we correct this, why can't I get on this plane? And I, I asked her, I said, well, there are empty seats on the plane, and she says... Well, yeah, there are, there are empty seats, but I got to get down there and, and make sure the baggage gets on. So you'll just basically have to wait. And in the meantime, I'm trying to figure this out. And another a, a young couple shows up and they need to get home as well. And then another young woman who's going for a job interview shows up and there are four of us standing there. And the, the plane plane's still sitting there. The bags haven't arrived yet. There's no reason we can't get on this plane. And through just essentially a lot of, of struggle and threatening to we, we essentially asked we, we need to talk to a supervisor here the plane is sitting there with the door open and then the, the woman starts to get belligerent with us and largely it just boiled down to she didn't want to put the effort in that it was going to take to get us on this plane luckily by sheer luck the bags were delayed so much that a supervisor eventually does show up and she goes through the steps that she needs to get through to get us on this plane and we get on the plane all four of us make it, which is great. We get on the plane. There are empty seats everywhere. And then we proceed to sit there for another 30 minutes before the bags even show up. Now, had we decided at that time that we were just going to take her answer that we couldn't get on the plane, for no reason, we, we would have been sitting in the Detroit airport. I actually had a backup flight that wasn't going to go for a few hours, but the others didn't even have backup flights. So they'd have been spending the night there. And it just, it all goes back to essentially just customer service and being good at what you do, no matter what it is that you do. So I had a, I had a science teacher in high school, Mr. Zabor, and he used to always tell us, it doesn't matter what you are, you got to give it a hundred percent. He said, so if you're going to be a bum, he said, be a good bum, which is something that always stuck out to me. But here's a case where this woman 
All she had to do was put in a little extra effort and try to do what it took to get us onto this flight. And I don't mean for this to be, this is Delta Airlines, and I only bring that up because nine out of 10 times I have a good experience with them. I've been flying with them for a number of years, and I will always pick them if I have the opportunity. But you can always always run into a situation where you have an individual who just simply doesn't want to help you or doesn't want to do their job that day. And the lesson for me and the reminder for me here was, you know what, If, if you can do better, then do better. Because I wonder, once we got on that plane and we pulled out, I wonder if that woman ever went back and reflected on how she had treated us and the experience we ended up having and thought to herself, you know what, I probably could have done a little bit better there. It's okay if you don't understand what it takes to get our tickets to be able to work to get on the plane. Just simply say, you know what, I need to call a supervisor. Let me do what I can to help you. And hopefully there's enough time between now and the bags getting here. But she didn't do that. Her focus was on, essentially it became trying to keep us off the plane, I think, because we actually made her do her job that day and and it made her life a little bit more difficult. So uh, the walk down Red Dog Road today, essentially the moral of the story here is if you can do better, do better. And especially when you have other people involved, if you can make somebody else's day better, then by all means, you should do that. So that's our lesson for today. So let's go ahead and jump into the meat of this week's episode. And I'll be flying solo. I don't have a guest for this one. But I want to talk a little bit more deeply about the story that I wrote about this week on reddogroad.net called Fish Photo Fail. And One of the things you can't really get across in a short article, there's always a lot of background and context and some other things. And when I write articles that are going to be web-based, I try to keep them short because people's attention spans are short. They're going to read it on their phone. So you have to pretty much get to the the meat of the story and get to the ending and, and do it quickly. But here, this format allows me to go a little bit deeper, and I wanted to do that because I had so much fun writing that short story. And the the point I want to stress here is when I was a kid— I just, I really, really loved fishing. My fishing rod was never too far from me. I I still love fishing, by the way, but the issue I have now is I just have so much limited time, and maybe I just don't make enough time to get out there and fish like I used to, but it's something I've always enjoyed, something I love, and I, I loved it as a very young kid. And I never cared what kind of fishing it was. For me, oftentimes, it was just catching creek chubs in the stream near the house because I didn't have access to what I would call real fishing. I mean, you're a young kid. You can't drive. Uh, trout season in the area it was relatively short because as soon as the water started to get warm, uh, it just wasn't as good. And I also, like I said, I can't drive anywhere, so I couldn't get to any places. So a lot of times it was just about baiting a hook and catching some creek chubs in the in the local stream. But sometimes I would get the added treat of going to visit my grandparents who lived in Plumville, Pennsylvania. It's a tiny, tiny little town. And they owned and operated a bar there. And one of the great things about it, though, was that they had this little stream behind the bar, and it was a, it's a tributary. It doesn't even have a name. It's an unnamed tributary uh, to Keystone Lake, which is a a really great place to fish, at least it was for me growing up. But at any rate, um, it's a no-name stream. And they had a little walking bridge that connected their property with the neighbors, and I remember vividly going and setting on that bridge and just trying to catch creek chubs out of it. Now, when I was really tiny, the, um, my parents tied a, instead of a regular fishing hook, it was actually a a shower curtain hook, and I didn't know any better, and I thought I was fishing, and the, the main thing was I was out of their hair and staying out of trouble, but eventually I got a real hook and was able to use a real rod, and I had many, many times as a kid catching creek chubs out of that stream, and it was it was a great time. I would hook one, and I'd run up and show them at the house, and then run back down, and 
throw it back. And unfortunately, I probably killed most of them doing that. But at any rate, it was it was something that I just loved doing. And that was my highlight of going to visit uh, grandma and grandpa when the weather was good. So eventually I got old enough to where I could go explore more of the stream. And unfortunately, part of that involved crossing a highway. And eventually I was able to convince my my mom and dad that you know I, I should really be able to go explore over there. And I'll look both ways before I cross. And I think the first couple of times they walked across with me, but I was able to find a couple of really, what I would call really good fishing holes there. I mean, in, in streams like this, you're, when you say a really good fishing hole, it's one that you just can't see the bottom of. And so I found two really good spots. And one of them was through a culvert that was under a road. I think the name of that road is called Rummel Road, just a little dirt road. It's a dead end road. But there was a big culvert pipe there. And you could throw your line up in this culvert. And there would be fish in the culvert for sure. But whenever the whenever your bait would fall off the culvert and into the hole that was that the culvert continually dug out from the water flow, that was just a really good spot to fish. And I remember catching some really nice creek chubs in there and some horned chubs, which were a little bit bigger and Eventually, you would catch the occasional sucker or even a little uh, little catfish now and then. But at any rate, it was just a great spot. And it took you a while to, to, to catch all the fish that were in it. So you could spend a lot of time there. And again, the cool part was you couldn't see the bottom. So you just didn't know what was in there. And then eventually, I worked my way downstream a little bit to where it came into a bend. And there was another decent-sized hole there as well. You could almost take a real cast. Now, again, this stream was one that... Uh, by the time I was a teenager, I could probably just about jump across it. But these two spots were really, to me, I just thought I found paradise over there because I was back in the woods a little bit and I was able to fish by myself often. And I had these great places to fish and I caught a good number of fish back there. And it's it's interesting for bait in those days, my favorite bait was just a balled up piece of Wonder Bread that I would turn into dough balls because it's not like I there was a bait store nearby and I would occasionally catch some worms yeah, and one of the great things, too, about my grandparents' places, they had tons of night crawlers in their backyard. And I was able to go out there and catch a lot of night crawlers just for the sake of catching them most of the time. But at any rate, my favorite bait at this point in time was just dough balls made from Wonder Bread. And I'd get back there and catch these creek chubs. And so I, just as a typical visit to my grandparents, this was in, I'm going to say it was late March. Maybe it was early April. It's It's been a long time now. This was, I think I was about 10, 9 or 10 years old at the time. So we're talking uh, over 30 years now. So it's been a long time. But I remember going back there and I got down to that bend on the stream where the nice hole was. And we had a little bit of rain and it didn't take much to muddy the water. And so it was a little bit off color, which I learned was was even better because the fish couldn't see you then on this small stream. So there I am, I throw my line out, and as often happened, right away I started to get a bite. But I knew that this was not your typical creek chub bite that I would get. This was a pretty solid bite. And then it happened again, and I set the hook, and I'm reeling this thing in, and I realized, man, this must be one of the biggest creek chubs that I've ever hooked into here. Well, eventually I get it, and it flops up on the bank, and I realize this is no creek chub. And as a matter of fact, I take a good look at it and I realize that what's flopping on the ground in front of me is a trout. And I'm kind of like in disbelief trying to get a hold of this thing so I don't lose it back in the stream. And get, next thing I know, I'm, I'm cleaning them off and looking at them and it's just a brown trout. And I knew it was a brown trout because my dad would bring his fish home from fishing and they'd be in the sink and he'd show me what, which ones were brown trout and brook trout and the occasional rainbow trout. So I knew I had a brown trout here. And my instinct is I just, I throw it into my, into my bucket that I always had with me and he's in the bucket 
And it just was crazy, but I, I baited my hook and threw out again, and lo and behold, in the very next task, I catch another one, but this time it's a brook trout. And here I am, just mind blown. I've got a bucket with two trout in it, and not really knowing what to do with it. And at this point, I just can't contain my excitement, right? I have to get these things home and show them off. And so I, I don't think I even fished anymore at that point. So I grabbed, I grabbed my bucket, and I go running across the road, and I, I don't even remember if I looked both ways. I'm, I'm sure that I did, though. And uh, get across there and, and go into Grandma's house with these two trout, and all I could think about was this is like this is a really big deal. I'm a really big deal now. This is this is gonna just turn the house upside down, and they're gonna have a parade for me. And this is just unreal. I don't know where these trout came from. This isn't a stocked stream, like I said. It's just a little tributary. I mean, later later on, as I got older, I learned about things like spawning, and, and clearly these trout had come up from Keystone Lake, and they they were trying to spawn in this small stream. But at any rate, uh, get the fish there. And people were excited. I mean, maybe it wasn't quite the level of excitement that I thought that it deserved, but for a little while anyway, it was a pretty big deal. And I convinced my my dad that we needed to keep these fish, so he cleaned them there for me and showed me how to do it and threw them in a the refrigerator for the rest of the visit and then finally had the opportunity to go home. And so the whole time I'm beaming, right? And even though it's just a 15-minute uh, drive home to to from where my grandparents lived to where to our house was, it always seemed like it was a really long ride. When you're a kid, right, even a five-minute ride seems like a long ride. But this trip seemed like it was even longer because I just couldn't wait to get home because I wanted to get a picture with these fish. And my little brother's sitting there, and he's kind of excited too. He must have been maybe four or five at the time. Uh, just looking at the picture, I'm trying to guess what his age would have been. But he was all very young, but not old enough to go across the road to fish with me for sure. But he was excited, and we're all excited. And so... At any rate, we get to the house, and for for people that are closer to my age, I'm in my going into my mid 40s now. Essentially, you'll remember that photos, taking photos in those days, was nothing like taking photos today. And I get a kick out of watching young people, in particular. Uh, they'll take a selfie, and then they'll look at it, and if there's another person in the picture, they'll take they'll look at it and decide together whether or not it's good enough. And you just keep taking pictures until you get something that you like. Well, this is not how you did it in those days. You had a film camera, and you just you you pulled it up to your eye, and it made a snap when you when you when you set the trigger, uh, when you hit the shutter, and then you had to forcefully wind the film forward, and you never really knew what you were getting in these photos until you got them developed. And this is even before one hour developing was a big deal, right? This is this is a time where you would take photos, and by the way. You would never take four or five shots. You would take two in case the first one didn't come out usually. But you would never send that film to be developed until the whole roll was shot. And typically exposures were 24 or 36 exposures. So when something like this happens, it's not a holiday. It's just a day that, uh, you know, this. we had this excitement. I caught these fish. So my mom takes a picture of me holding the fish. And then my brother wants to be in a picture. So there are two pictures taken. And then the camera gets set down on the counter or wherever and it's going to sit there until after probably easter and then maybe fourth of july if you had a picnic and then maybe sometimes even christmas it wasn't unusual to not send that roll in until after a couple holidays had passed so finally later in the year we get to the point where the roll is shot and it's time to get the pictures developed and when i say get the pictures developed it's not like you would get down to the store and then get one out of our photo processing you had to send them away 
and usually it took a couple of weeks to get these photos back. So you can see the basically what happens is you pretty much forget what was even on the camera. And when you get the pictures, it was very common for you to be flipping through and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was cool. And uh, just all, all of those crazy things that people that are about my age and older would remember this. So finally, we, we get the picture sent off. I've just about forgotten about them at this point. Uh, there is, you know, it's not like today. If you make a good catch within seconds, you can have that thing on social media and share it with thousands of people. Well, it's not like that, obviously, at this point. But when the photos finally show up in the mail, uh, typically you wouldn't open them until the whole family could gather around and look at them together. And that was the case in in this situation. But I knew, I remembered that those trout fish, that those trout fish, that those photos of those fish were on this roll. So they finally come in and we're gathered around as a family and we're flipping through them. And some of the first pictures weren't my trout and I could care less what they were. I just wanted to see these pictures. And we finally get to the pictures. And the very first photo is there I am holding my trout. And you can see my mom's thumb covering my face. You can't even see my face. So then there's like sort of this awkward pause and then flip to the second picture. And I know hoping that maybe the second one, her thumb wasn't in the photo. But there it is. And not, not, only, not only was her thumb in the photo totally covering my face, the, the, my brother is standing in the second picture, and he's out, he's out from under her thumb, and you can plainly see him smile with a big smile on his face. And there I am with my two trout, and you can't see me. And there was no way she could have known at the time. And I, if I remember correctly now, I think my mom was pretty famous for taking a lot of photos with her thumb in front of the lens. And there I am with my two prized pictures, and you can't even see my face. So, you know, at the time, I remember, I'm sure I was really disappointed about it, especially when my mom, she looks at the second picture and she says, well, at least we can see your brother in this one, <laughs> which, which, which was not helping. But there I am, a young kid, and what am I going to say, right? My dad's standing right there too. If I say something, you know, to my mom about, well, how, did, how could you mess this up? I'm probably going to get a backhander. <laughs> so you pretty much just have to stand there, and I'm sure they could tell I was disappointed. But at any rate, it's interesting because now, at the time, like I said, it was disappointing. But all these days later, and as I and I often do, I'll go back and look at some of these old photos from when I was a kid. I just remember looking at this photo the other day, and I'm thinking, this is gold. Like I can re- because I can remember. I can remember my mom when you posed for a photo. You had to get lined up, and everything had to be just right. And in this case, I remember. Or if you look in the photo, you'll see the, the the wallpaper in the background. It reminded me of the wallpaper that we had there. And that area, of the house, they still live in the same house, but it looks nothing like that now. But I specifically remember having those photos taken, and, I, and I, it took me back to when I caught the fish. And uh, excuse me, when I caught the fish, and it took me back to when the photo was taken and it took me back to opening the photos and the anticipation and the excitement and I think that because the photo wasn't perfect it helped to bring back all those memories and even today when I look at photos that so many photos now are staged right I mean and when I say staged uh, they're probably they're, I mean mo- mostly they're taking in taken in the moment but they're made to be perfect and I really appreciate now these ones that aren't perfect and even the ones that went horribly wrong like this fish photo fail uh, that, that my mother snapped in that day. And uh, when I posted the story on Facebook, I saw she had a comment. My mother commented. She said, how humiliating. And I just laughed. I said, actually, no, this is what makes it a great story, the fact that it wasn't perfect. And at a time where we strive so much for perfection in these images and what we portray to the rest of the world, my favorite thing about this one was that it wasn't perfect. 
And I think that brings me to the bigger meaning of this story, which is much more than a fish story for me. And it's, it really, it helps you, I think, understand that why something maybe went a certain way or why something happened to you at the time. I couldn't understand it because I was disappointed. But now I really do appreciate it because it made to now now that photo is so much more fun for me and it means so much more to me as opposed to if it would have been perfect i might not have even taken a second glance at it and i think the the moral of the story here is when something happens to you negative like that and i know it's difficult it's just you have to keep a positive outlook about it um you have a much better chance of dealing with it first of all no matter what it is but also give your chance, give yourself a chance to figure out why maybe it went that way. Maybe you'll find out later. Maybe you'll find out a few moments later. Maybe it'll be years later. And I can think of many, many instances in my life where something didn't go the way I wanted to and I ended up disappointed only to find out why maybe it was better that it didn't happen that way. And this photo is one of those examples. And it just reminds me of a lesson I learned long ago and one that I would share with you today, and that is, you know, don't force life to happen. We had Muley Matt on last episode talking about capturing images and capturing moments, and he mentioned about his favorite ones or ones that he just sort of snapped or impromptu. And and I, I feel the same way, certainly, about this photo, as I've said in other ones, and that is it's just don't force life to happen. Don't try to make or portray this perfect life, because none of us are perfect. None of us have everything go according to plan. And if, if something doesn't go the way you expect, you know what, there's probably a good reason for it, and you'll probably find out down the road. And in this case, more than 30 years later, as I was going through old pictures, I just had a huge smile on my face about a photo that just didn't go right. But a lot of other things did uh, go right around that situation, and it just brought me back and allowed me to write a, write a fun story about it and share it here with you on the podcast. So uh, things don't go the way you, you plan. Just give it a second, and I think you'll figure out why eventually. I hope you enjoyed my fish story today, and I hope that it helps you reflect on a moment in your life that may have gone a similar way, maybe something that's going on in your life right now that you don't understand why it's going a certain way, and uh, maybe it'll give you a chance to have a little bit more patience with it and, and let it play out. So this week ahead, I'm headed down to Nashville for the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting for my job with the National Deer Alliance. Now, I'm not a biologist uh, but I love that environment because most of the people presenting there are biologists or scientists, and they're going to uh, provide all their latest research on deer and deer management, which is something that, uh, aside from my career, is a personal passion of mine. So I'm going to enjoy that. There are also some really great people that I've met over the years that work on deer issues across the country, and it'll be a fun time just being there and learning and listening and spending time with some colleagues. And maybe there'll be an opportunity to grab a guest while I'm there for for an upcoming episode for sure. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. I'm also really looking forward to adding Mike to the show here shortly and getting his perspective, uh, having him as a co-host. And you won't just have to listen to my voice all the time, which I think will immediately make it better. But you won't find a more detail-oriented, passionate guy than Mike. And that'll come through in the show, I'm sure. And talk about someone I talk, gave the story at the beginning about giving 100%. Mike is a 100% guy through and through for sure. He doesn't do anything halfway. And I think that's probably why we've been such good friends over the years, and you can expect the same out of him as this show continues to grow. So that'll be great to add him. And just a final reminder to contact me with your ideas and your stories, and you can do that through the reddogroad.net website. So 
uh, don't be afraid to do that. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And also, if you haven't already, consider subscribing to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And also maybe leave me a small review. As I was listening to some podcasts this week, uh, many of the, uh, the hosts of the shows talk about leaving them a review. And I recognize that I've never really asked for that. So uh, even if you don't like it, I think those are helpful too. So just if you would subscribe and leave me a review, I'd appreciate that. And consider subscribing to the show as well. So with that, I want to thank you again for joining. I look forward to sharing another story with you again sometime very soon. And I hope you have a great week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. If you like what you heard here, please consider subscribing and telling your friends. You can also visit the website and blog at reddogroad.net.